Welcome back to Embracing Death. I'm your host, Julia. Join me each week as I have a conversation with someone who has a unique relationship to death in an attempt to better cope with our own inevitable mortality. The subject of death can be really heavy and at times can cause some intense emotions, but that's the whole aim of the show, is to create a place for people to share and relate to others so we can face our death with a little less fear and learn to embrace our eventual end. This week, I talk with Carrie, a death doula from Canada. We talk about the importance of death doulas as a resource to those who are facing the end of their lives. We talk about what working with a death doula is really like and how she helps people find comfort and connection during the most challenging, confusing, and uncertain time in most people's lives. Hi, I'm Carrie Sawatsky and I'm a death doula. I live in Alora, Ontario, Canada, and I coach uh, families, namely spouses and adult children who are supporting someone who's dear to them with a life-limiting illness. And I also teach a death doula training program and work with people both in the U.S. and Canada. Awesome, Carrie. Thank you so much for coming on the show. When I started developing this idea of embracing death, so many people reached out to me and said, you have to get a death doula. They are amazing. They are such a great resource, a wealth of knowledge. And so when I started looking, I knew I needed to have you on the show and learn all about death doula ship, what your career path is, and just all about embracing death from a death doula standpoint. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me here. I want to dive right into how and what you do and why. Uh, so the journey to working in death care, postmortem care, and this kind of embracing death atmosphere can be kind of a funky, a funky journey. So how did you, how did your journey lead you to becoming a death doula? So in my early 20s, I was palliating some loved ones and uh, friends and friends of family. I had a number of experiences that occurred. And it was through those experiences that I was left with, there has got to be another way to do death and dying. I just felt that it left me feeling in shock in some cases. It felt quite traumatic. Even with people that had life-limiting illnesses for several years, we felt unprepared. We didn't know what to expect or who to turn to or talk to. And uh, we had to learn a lot on the fly and it was, it was stressful. We missed some really key moments and opportunities to make connection. And so it was from those experiences that I was on a quest to find another way to do death, dying and bereavement. Death is the one thing that since humans, homo sapiens or whatever, you know, whatever developmental stage we developed consciousness is when we started knowing as, as a humankind that we were going to die, right? And so we've been dying for, you know, millions, billions, however many years you believe that we've been around. Mm -hmm. We've been dying forever. And mm -hmm. the process of dying just really hasn't changed much. There hasn't been this change in how we view death, how we face death, how we kind of go towards it. And so your job was kind of to bridge that gap of the way we've always been doing it, which can be horrifying, traumatizing, and just really emotional and really hard. And you've found a way to kind of bridge that gap where you fill those gaps of the things that most people, when they lose a loved one, they look back and say, I wish we would have had time to do this. I wish we would mm -hmm. have been able to do this. And so what your job essentially is, is to help people look at their death in a way that they can kind of connect with it in a deeper level, which I think is really special. Yeah. And helping to lay the foundation. So everything from planning well before a person has a diagnosis when we're healthy and well. And actually, the first thing I did after becoming a death doula was to write an end of life planning guide. And I wrote that because we needed a resource like that when my dear people 
were in their end of life. And so that's something that I created was an essential end of life planner that's a fill in the blank with all the resources, information and questions that you'll get asked. And it really helps to tease out your, your deepest concerns and fears and communicate what it is that you hope to happen and, um, and would like to plan to happen. You were helping to palliate some loved ones, some friends, and you realized this process that we've been using is really kind of not fully developed. And, and you've created this guide, which we'll definitely get into because I cannot wait to get my own mm. copy of your book, uh, of your guide. Um, but let's talk a little bit about where you were in your life and kind mm -hmm. of what kind of things you had to do, training, certifications, experiences you had to go through to become a death doula. Sure. So I'll explain a little bit about that. And then I'll also um, give you this great analogy that one of my clients um, used to explain what I do. So I was in my early 20s when I had those uh, death experiences with loved ones. And then I um, went to a film screening for a green burial film and met a woman who uh, announced that she was a death doula and also a nurse. And I thought, a death doula? I've never heard of a death doula before. And so I took her out for coffee and we got chatting and I learned about the different um, options of what you can do as a death doula and what her role looks like. And so from there, I took a death doula training program and I've taken um, hospice training and I'm uh, one of the lead provincial trainers for the last aid training, as well as one of the lead trainers for a local hospice uh, new training program. And the analogy that one of my clients gave me, which I just love, is she described me as, she said, it's like you're, you're like a tour guide. It's like our family is in this new city. We don't speak the language. We've never been there. We're starting to get a little bit distant and lost from each other. And you're helped there to help us bring each other back, be connected, not miss any meaningful or points of interest or, or really special things along the way. And you're helping us to arrive at our destination calmly, grounded, and all connected with some beautiful memories made. And I just love that because it speaks so well to, to how I work with clients. That's amazing. I, I love that analogy that you're a tour guide because once you are face to face with your mortality, like you have a expiration date or a roundabout time where you have to start thinking about it more in the now than in the future, it can be really scary because you for one you're overwhelmed with the fact that you have to face that but then it's also like there's so many things that go into death that i don't think people really understand there is a lot of financial medical and just other planning things that you know a lot of times when you're when you get the diagnosis you focus solely on those things like how are we going to pay for our the funeral how are we going to pay for hospice how are we you know are we going to put you in a home what kind of things we need to do in like the objective sense but a lot of times people miss that there is this whole other emotional side to to death and i think a lot of times families and the love the person that is passing away they don't get to embrace those special emotional moments because they're so worried about the financial or medical or objective side of things. So would you say mm -hmm. that what you do really helps kind of allow them to build that emotional aspect of, of the process? So I would say that one of the main things I do is help with mindset coaching. And so this is essentially I'm coaching families and individuals that have a diagnosis to live with uncertainty. 
So oftentimes when there's a diagnosis, we don't know how long the person will continue to live for, but it has made it very apparent that if the diagnosis is a life-limiting illness, that the, the length of their life will likely be limited by this disease progression. And so my goal is to namely uh, bear witness and acknowledge the person for exactly where they're at, validating their experience, and then providing them with resources, coaching tools to uh, set their day up so that they are really grounded and calm on a, on a daily basis. And so that they can continue to keep living their life even with a diagnosis or even with supporting someone with a diagnosis. So you work with people that are terminally ill, people that are facing firsthand the experience of, of, of their death. You also work with caregivers um, and the loved ones, the family, um, around the person that is passing away. So let's kind of dive right into the terminal ill, the person who gets the diagnosis. What kind of things, you know, you've already kind of given us a broad um, kind of idea of what you do with them, but let's get into like the nitty gritty, the 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 mindset support, how we do things like that, um, mm -hmm. how you help them kind of with this process. Sure. So initially when I start working with a client, they fill out an application. So I get a sense of what, uh, what their experience is like, who is in their life supporting them or not, what their day-to-day -day is like, what their um, diagnosis or condition is, and what some of the main challenges are and their, their hopes for the future or what their vision is, if they have a sense of that, and they may not. And then when we start working together, I start to look at what kinds of um, comfort measures are in place. So really looking at their end of life experience from a very holistic model. So their mind, their body, their spirit, um, making sure we're tending to all those things, including their environment and those supporting them. And then um, I use my guide. So the modern death care end of life planning guide, and we go through that together, or sometimes they will do that on their own, filling out some of the essential information. So for example, if a client has a new diagnosis and they haven't done um, any end of life planning previously, then we'll start with the substitute decision maker section. And that section is all about how to plan for someone else making healthcare decisions for you when you're not able to, but you're still alive. So you may be unconscious or you may have had uh, surgery and not be able to speak for yourself. So we're looking at uh, doing those that sort of planning first, and then expanding it out to, to broader planning. There may also be some legacy uh, project work together if they have the energy and interest for that. And a lot of my focus is again on mindset work and helping them to, to experience more ease and comfort in their physical you know, body and experience. So I'll use an example, um, example of lighting, for example. So with lighting, if you walk into a room, let's say as a death doula or a caregiver, and you notice this is the person is um, mostly bed bound, and so they're experiencing a lot of their time in the room, you wanna look around to see what would that experience be like for me if, if that was me? So you might look at how much light is coming into the room. Does it feel like a warm and cozy environment? Is it dark? If the person wants to uh, read in bed? Are they able to do that with ease? If they had to get up to go to the washroom in the night, is that something that is safe for them to do? Perhaps we could put a flashlight or a lamp that is a touch lamp to make it easier to turn on. This is just one example, just talking about lighting. 
to look at how we can provide comfort and how we can start to ask questions of the client or of the loved one to find out what it is that they they might want to provide more comfort for themselves. As a nurse, I'm an ER nurse, so as a, as a nurse, when we think of comfort, we think of medication and repositioning up until, you know, the person is at the point where repositioning is um, more painful than not. But something as simple as gentle lighting, maybe a candle, maybe a scent, or a cozy blanket as opposed to like rough hospital sheets. Mm -hmm. I think all of those things are really important because in the final transition of life, we we see so many times these abrupt and, and uncomfortable situations. But if you're given the opportunity to make it as comfortable as possible, like why wouldn't we, right? So I think that's really special that you take something as simple as a touch light so they don't have to find the switch, something they can just touch and turn on and be able to read you know, their book or their magazine or whatever. I think that's a really important aspect to the process because most people, they don't want to think about it. Firstly, mm-hmm. you know, most people don't even want to think about that at all. And I love how you're giving them space to say, like, I know you don't want to think about it, but it's going to come a point where would you rather have the comfort or would you rather not think about it? And I think you're giving them the space where it doesn't make it as scary because you're helping guide them instead of saying, like, how do you want to be comfortable? How do you want to read? How do you want to do this? you're allowing them kind of the space and you're giving them the opportunity to kind of come to those decisions. Yeah. And that's also part of this role as a death doula is to, to invite, um, is to ask the client what it is that they, they want or need and to really have them take the lead being there to offer supports and having a whole toolbox of different ways to provide comfort and give them mindset tools, but also to, to really take, take their lead and it, I mean, the clients that are coming to me are the people that are putting their hands up to say, I want the support. I want to talk about this. I am uncomfortable. I want to make a meaningful end of life experience. So there isn't any convincing on on my end. These are people coming to me for uh, very specific kinds of emotional, compassionate support. And I'll also add that um, as a death doula, my role is to show up also being comfortable talking about death, dying, bereavement. So that's also part of this package is that I'm comfortable using these words, using the D word. And, um, and that brings a lot of comfort to people to be able to, to know that they can talk about their bowel regularity and I can provide recipes or show them how to do massage or show a caregiver how to help them with massage or body positions that can help with that. Or perhaps they're having difficulty communicating with their family or healthcare team so I can be an advocate for them. There's all kinds of ways to support uh, both the person with a diagnosis and uh, family members. I love that. And speaking of boundaries and uh, advocating, how, how do you, you also, you know, you work with these people who are usually surrounded by family and it can be kind of, sometimes the waters can get a little muddy when you have a, a person who has specific wishes and maybe the family isn't quite on board with, with that. How would you approach a situation where the patient wants something and the family is really adamant that they want something else? How, how do you help with uh, the advocacy there? Because I know that that's a really big concern for a lot of people is their family not wanting, not having the same wishes for the, as the patient. That can be very challenging. The first thing, and that's part of why I wrote the book, is 
that we want to be having these conversations well ahead of time, well before there's a need. And in my family, actually, uh, two family members no longer speak because they both very lovingly were trying to provide, um, or to, they were really lovingly trying to honor another family member's wishes that had a diagnosis and they misinterpreted their wishes, but because they weren't able to have the conversation with them after they died, they were doing their best to honor those, but they were in conflict. And so that broke apart uh, part of our family. And that's a very common experience, a common occurrence that I hear lots of times. So first is you want to appoint the people who are going to best honor your wishes. And that isn't always going to be necessarily your spouse or your eldest child or all of your children together. You want to pick a person or people who can advocate for you and, and make choices based on the wishes that you would have made if you could speak for yourself. And while you are, um, while you have full capacity to be able to make your own decision making, you want to have people that can advocate for you. So whether that's bringing on a death doula, perhaps you have a friend or um, a cousin that has the wherewithal to advocate. But oftentimes the person with an illness, uh, their energy is declining over time and they simply don't have the energy to um, resist or persist. And so I, I suggest and highly recommend doing the planning ahead of time and then having the people close to you that can advocate for you. So then the, the person passes away, they die. I, I know a lot of people are afraid to use the word die, but death is the word passing away i sometimes it doesn't feel right to me so we'll use die in this in mm -hmm. this instance because it's not a scary word right we have to destigmatize the word death and die because it shouldn't yes. be scary it's part of life so you know if you if we can't handle part of life then we we really need to be seeking some some more in-depth help but so say the person dies you're the person that you're working with what other things how do you help after after death so I help the families with home funeral coaching if that's something they want to do. So um, if they want to have the body brought home or if the person has died at home, then I support them in doing ritual, bathing the person if they wish, or simply using a washcloth to tenderly love and lovingly nurture them by washing their hands and face perhaps. If the family needs support with communication to other family members or friends that the person has died, then I'll be the person to reach out. Or if they are looking for resources for green burials or um, occasionally I also receive calls from clients where a death has occurred and it was an unexpected death. And in those instances, I will give them opportunities to do ritual, whether they have just arrived at the funeral home and they wanna make meaning in that moment before the body's cremated, then we can do something like having each person write a little note to put with the body. Everyone, if they, if they feel comfortable, can place a hand on the person's body and say a few wishes, or they can all hold hands around them together. That those are just a few small examples of ways to make meaning in a very unexpected experience. And the same goes with being in a hospital. There's ways that we can bring meaning and comfort and ease even when the person has died um, maybe in an undesirable location. I love the idea of writing a letter and sending it into the cremation 
process with someone Mm. because when I my cat passed away and I know this is not a person but this is my experience my my cat passed away last summer and I wrote a note and I buried him with it and Mm. it was just kind of like a thank you for loving me thank you for letting me love you and you know he I I that went with him into his grave and so that to me is really to know that that's an option is really special because everyone in my family, we've all decided we want cremated and, you know, spread legally and humanely and whatever. Um, but I think the idea of getting to send a little I love you note to beyond would be is a really special thing. And I didn't know that mm, existed. That's beautiful. And I really encourage people to do a ritual that feels um, feels comfortable to them and feels in line with their their values and beliefs. So I don't have prescriptive rituals that are, you know, each person go out and do this and this will help with with healthy grieving. It, it doesn't work like that. So it's beautiful that you you innately knew to write something and the words from your heart flowed. Yeah, unfortunately, we can't copy and paste healing and <laughs> grieving processes, right? It doesn't it doesn't work the same for everybody. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's funny when people ask what I do and I tell them I'm a death doula, they often will tell me a death story of theirs, which I'm which I'm often honored to hear. And uh, they also ask me, what, what do you say to someone who's grieving? Or, or people will call and say, what do I say to so-and-so who's just found out they have um, an illness? The good and bad news is that there aren't any magic words that I have, even as a death doula. And what really is most helpful is seeing and acknowledging the person exactly where they're at, bearing witness to their experience and not going anywhere. And I say that with the caveat that it's important to make sure that you're resourced first. So if you don't have the capacity to support others or to have conversations and hear their grief or, um, or be with their loss, then that's okay. There's, that's not a bad thing. You need to look after yourself first. And that is the core of what I do with adult children and spouses of someone with an illness is that we do a lot of self-care practices and self-care has gotten a little bit buzzwordy over the years, but really what that means is deeply nourishing ourselves with the things that bring us ease and joy and lightness so that when we are faced with some of these bigger life challenges or moments, then we have more self-awareness to be able to draw from, from this well of knowledge of the things and the people and the environments that help us to feel calm and grounded and supported through life's major challenges. Wow, that's super helpful because we all know someone who's grieving or someone who's going to be going through the grief process or someone who's just gotten a diagnosis that's maybe not favorable. And I think that's one of the one of the ickiest kind of things. And that's why it's really hard to talk about death is because when we're the person not experiencing it firsthand, we don't know how to say like, oh man, I'm sorry, because I'm sorry doesn't mean anything, or I don't know how you feel. I can't imagine how you feel. So I think it's important to know that you have to be able to say, I don't know how you feel, like mm-hmm. shit, like shit, this sucks. Like I think putting it in a way that's not this emotional, like, oh, well, at least you're gonna be in a better place. Like, no, I think just being, for me, it's like, oh, that sucks. Like, Mm -hmm. that's my way of like giving that to people because it does. And, you know, a lot of times it's like, well, look at the positive. And a lot of times, like, sometimes you just have to be where you are and being Mm -hmm. able to just say, tell me more. Tell me about it. How are you feeling? Like, 
spill it out on me because we all know that talk talking is one of the best ways to kind of decompress and so not that I could give any recommendations but I say just sit there and and be present for them and just listen and not having Mm -hmm. to offer like oh I'm sorry oh oh that you know at least this like just say I'm here talk it's a great invitation and and it's a great rule of thumb that anything that starts with at least just leave that out (laughs) it's often quite unhelpful Um, But again, just going back to deeply seeing them, seeing them in their experience, bearing witness, acknowledging what they're going through, offering or asking if they want support in a specific way or inviting them to do you want to come over for dinner or go for a tea or, or have a walk together, but prefacing your support from would it be okay or would it be helpful if I shared um, what was helpful for me and they might say no and that's great just honor their no. But if there's, if you're tending towards fixing, just note that in yourself, don't make it wrong. Just note that you're having this discomfort and your energy is going towards wanting to fix to help your own comfort. And just to bring it back to, I'm uncomfortable right now. And I really have this tendency to want to fix your experience or to give you tips. So I'm just working with that inside and Um, what would be most supportive for you right now? Can we definitely talk about projection of what works for us doesn't work for other people? And so this is the one, not in death, but in life. When I talk to anyone, especially about like relationships, they always, they give love in the way they receive love, right? So like love language is Mm -hmm. if it's physical touch, you might give physical touch. And then your partner's love language might not be that. So everyone wants to give compassion and energy and love the way that they like to receive it and we have to remember that when you come to somebody and say you have advice on how to grieve like maybe don't unless the person is asking so like if there's times when people when they you ask how can I help you and someone says I don't know and that doesn't mean try it your way that means wait until they can offer you you know objectively subjectively emotionally a way for you to connect with them don't just throw out like this is what works for me without because you might over you might make the person uncomfortable or you might like overwhelm them Uh, my sister is one of those people that when people grieve she goes to their house cleans the house makes the lasagna like becomes the mother like takes over the rules Mm. of like caring for them and it's great because most people can go and grieve and do all the things that they need to for their loved one. But sometimes I'm like, maybe you should just give them a, some time. They have the lasagna, you know, like a lot of times we always we give the care that we want. And so just remember that if people don't know how you can help them yet, like just give them some space to think and breathe and, and don't project how you want to give care, because sometimes that might not be the best way. And I would also offer that waiting is is one great option. And sometimes for long periods of the time, they don't know what they need, but they might feel lonely or not be eating or, um, you know, the lawn needs cutting or the, the dishes need washing or the children need to get out to play, etc. Dogs need walking. So if you see something that you think might be helpful, it's okay to say, would it be okay to pick up the kids after school, feed them dinner and bring them back? Or I was thinking maybe it would be nice if we came over and walked your dog or would it feel helpful if we washed your dishes for you? And they may say, yes, they may say, it's amazing. Thank you. Or they may say, I just really need my privacy and space and, um, and to not make it mean anything about you. And if they don't respond to also not make that mean anything about you, but to keep inviting and just keep checking in and really trust your gut 
trust the energy that you're you're receiving and the words that they're giving and be a loving support in the wings by checking in. And I'll also add that oftentimes support tends to wane around three weeks after. And so if you can remember that, then you can start to check in if it's been a little while after three weeks, um, I mean, all the way along the way, if that feels comfortable to you, but then as the support starts to, to wane, you can reach, reach out around then. I think that's really helpful because a lot of times everyone's present at the moment or surrounding that moment. And, you know, a lot of the other guests that I've talked to, it's like, well, everyone goes on with their lives. Everyone moves on, but I'm still stuck. And so I think just reminding that long-term check-in with them after a while and, and continue to do that if, if you're in that space with that person. And definitely not taking things personally. I think as humans, we're really good about taking things personally. And uh, as a nurse, I've had to learn that as well, that when people yell and scream at you, it's because they're in pain or they're scared. Sometimes they, I could take it personally if, if they mean it personally. But generally, you know, people are not trying to maliciously hurt you or prevent you from caring for them. Sometimes they're just not quite ready for it yet. So staying in that state of mind that don't take it personally is really important, mm -hmm. I think, as well. So, you you know, with the terminally ill, you really help them kind of through this whole process. You help them get into the mindset. You help plan for what the dying process is going to look like. You help them with the postmortem, you know, plans and the, their wishes. And then you kind of with the caregivers. So say, you know, you're working with someone who's terminally ill and their spouse, you know, is around. How, how do you help with this, you know, with the caregivers, you said you touched on self-care. What, what does that look like? Because like you said, it's a buzzword. Mm -hmm. um, what, is, what does self-care look like in the realm that you help provide? So I especially help caregivers to grow their capacity to be with life's uncertainties, the uncertainty of their loved one's future, and then to help them to continue to live and to keep themselves grounded and calm and experiencing moments of lightness if that's available to them. And so what that looks like is uh, implementing some morning practices so that will be unique to each person through a conversation will get a sense of what might be a good fit for them and, and provide some options but what that could be is starting your morning by uh, leaving your phone off and not checking your email it could be journaling for a few pages to write down what's what you're really heavy something heavy you're experiencing it could be some sort of body movement whether that's going for a short walk around the block or doing some yoga or stretching. And I'll also add this in, it's coming to mind in this moment, that if you're going to do something um, stressful, let's say you're, you are anticipating stress by having a conversation with someone or uh, going to the doctor's office or, or um, some big life moment, even like coming onto the podcast, you might be feeling, okay, like, we're going into this, there's some, some nerves some anxiousness. And then, to, so to do some big, big muscle movements. So uh, you can even be sitting in a chair and just, uh, you can't see me, but I'm, uh, you know, flexing my biceps and um, you can do some squats or do big arm movements. And that helps to discharge some of this, this energy that continues to build. And so we want to help to move this energy through our body so that we aren't building a charge all day, which can then manifest into pain, disease, um, throwing your back out. So by helping my clients, especially caregivers, to, to discharge this built-up energy through movement, through talking, through journaling, then that's helping to support themselves to then offer support to the person with the illness. A lot of 
people, caregivers or spouses or those connected to the person dying, they completely forget how to care for themselves because they're solely focused on the end of life care of their loved one. And every person I've ever talked to in life in general, you cannot care for others if you are uncared for. Like you cannot give the best love, compassion, care if you are, you know, broken and and tattered and bruised. Like you have to in a sense, put yourself first or in the driver's seat in order to drive the vehicle. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really important is helping remind people that in order to care for your loved one, you have to get rest, you have to satiate yourself, you have to drink water, you have to eat food, you have to do these purposeful movements. So that way you can truly care for the person that you love. And yeah, I think that's a really important takeaway is that a lot of people, they just lose themselves to the care of their loved Mm -hmm. one. And it really ends and then eventually they end up regretting some of the things that happen at the end when they're stressed and tired, haven't slept, they might lash out or get um, impatient or annoyed with the the person dying. And, and, and I know that's no one wants to say that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure people look back with anger, bitterness, regret, annoyance. Like, I, I know this sounds horrible, but I'm sure people are annoyed with the process. Like, it's taking a long time. I'm not getting, you know, my life is on hold. And I think we need to normalize that like that can happen. And it, you're not a bad person for having these feelings at the end. Mm -hmm. And it often does happen. There's resentment built. There are fears. There are, there's anger. And then sometimes there's also, and oftentimes relief after the person has died. And then they feel guilty for feeling the relief that comes. And this is all normal. This is all widely experienced. And I'm so glad that you have this podcast because this gives us an opportunity to normalize these inner experiences that we often don't talk about. And then on top of those experiences, we build shame about how we spent the last months or weeks with a person and wishing that we'd done it differently. So I'm, yeah, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Me too. And and this comes full circle back to you as you help people so they can minimize some of those experiences at the end. You, mm-hmm. you make space for them to figure out and plan so when the loved one passes away, or when the person is dying, they can look back and say, oh, I'm so glad we had Carrie there because she gave us the opportunity to fill all these gaps, create all this loving energy instead of this resentment and bitterness. And I think that's amazing. And I'm not saying that you're going to cure it for everybody and everyone's going to leave the situation feeling great. But that's the whole point of what you do is to, to help minimize some of these really intense and, and yucky kind of things that happen at the end. And to really empower my clients, I, I want to set the tone that I'm not there to fix anything, that I'm there to invite participation, I'm there to invite new, employing new practices, uh, give resources, and I also am a very calm and grounding presence that can really hold a space and container that is in confidence in a very grounded and calm way so that it gives the space for other people to take a breath to maybe step out of the room and look after themselves by having a shower or doing something, even just putting lotion on their hands to go, oh, hey, I'm here. I'm in my body. I am separate from the person because they can often become enmeshed in these these end of life times. It's almost like they're part of the person that's dying and mm-hmm. they, can't, they can't disconnect that, hey, you're, you still have a future. You're, you're still kind of in this living realm. So I think that's really special that you help, you just help everyone involved. And I think death is, 
a lot of times when you think about it at the very end, it's this race where everyone is just go, 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 go. And they're focused and they're putting all this energy. And if you can help them channel it into like a, into a less chaotic space, then that's, that's really just beautiful. Mm, thank you. So I do want to touch. So we, you know, we, we figured out how, or we've talked about how you care for the terminally ill. We've talked about how you care for those that will be remaining, the caregivers, the loved ones, the family members. You also help with the spiritual care, which is something that, you know, everyone has their own beliefs and you help them bring that forward with them through this process. Can you touch a little bit about what that can look like? So I'm thinking about um, an emergency support call that I had recently and the client was on their way to go and see a loved one who was in their dying time and they wanted to make meaning of it. They knew that there's, there's ways to support the person, to support themselves, to make this meaningful, but they didn't know how. And so they'd been following me on Instagram and they reached out and we had a great conversation. I talked to them actually while they were driving on their way. So, you know, they had a very short window of, of needing support. And in that time, what I offered was to take an object from around the vehicle or if you're able to take a moment to pull over and even pick up a, um, a stone or perhaps you have something meaningful on you, a necklace or something, and to hold that object in your hand and to imbue that object with your, as much of your loving, compassionate energy as you can possibly muster, to really draw that into your body from the sky, from the ground, from your cells, all towards that object. And then when you go to see the person to walk very slowly, to stay in your body, really feel your skin, feel your feet moving, stay embodied. And then when you go to visit the person, you can leave this object with them. If they're not conscious, you can leave it perhaps on a bedside table, or it could be something you put in, your, in their hand or next to them. And anytime that you want to send loving energy towards them and you're thinking of them, this is a way to viscerally participate in bringing comfort to their end of life experience. So this is just one particular way that we can bring in a ritual to, to do something. Sometimes we just wanna do something and there's nothing we can really do. And so this is a way to provide loving, compassionate care, even at a distance to someone that you deeply care about. Another option that I help to facilitate is calling in ancestors. And so even with children, you can do a practice like setting up an altar, which could be as simple as a plate or um, a corner of a desk. And you may light a candle. You may put some photographs out if you have photographs or some objects that represent ancestors. And out loud or in your mind, you can speak to these ancestors, whether you've had a relationship to them or not. And you can ask them to come forward and to collect the loved one that is in their dying time when the person's ready. And so you can use their name and you can express gratitude for, for their life, which has given life to you. And you can also put out some high energy foods like espresso beans or honeycomb that uh, spirit can use for their own energy and to help them to, to essentially, if you can imagine the dying person is in a canoe and you're on one side of the shore and then you and your family are pushing the canoe off the shore across the lake. And on the other side, the ancestors are receiving them and they will become an ancestor. 
And so bringing in practices like this help to ground us, help us to give us something to do, and really connects us with this interconnectedness of, of being part of, of a greater picture. When you talk about the canoe, a lot of times people left in the living room, we, we don't want to push that canoe off. We want to hold it. And I think in, in terms of the spirit and energy, you know, the, the, the more graciously we can facilitate that passage, the more we can push instead of tug that canoe back to the shore, I think it allows the person that's dying an, e- an easier transition. So I'm not mm-hmm. saying like you want to like go ahead and die, or, <laughs> you know, but to give that energy, like you're saying, leaving the espresso beans, holding on that um, to the item and channeling love and leaving it with the person that's dying. I think that's a great analogy to like give that pushing of energy on to the next, to the next side, to the other side of the river. More than it being about pushing the canoe, it's really about letting go. And a way that we can really help ourselves to let go is to practice continuing the bond. So ideally, well before a person has died, you're having conversations about, uh, even pre-diagnosis, about things as light as, if I were to come back as an animal, this is the animal I would come back as. And then oftentimes people have made that connection or had that conversation and the person's come back as a cardinal or a butterfly or dragonfly. And, um, or you might say, um, I really believe that if I find dimes, that that means that an ancestor is with me. And you can also plant a specific flower that reminds you of the person or make their favorite recipe. So there's ways that we can continue to have a relationship with a person after they've died. And when we start to have a sense of how we might do that before the person dies, we're starting to develop ways that we will continue our bond with them, even when their physical presence isn't available to us anymore. I personally have experienced little signs and symbols from beyond like that as well. Um, And then I quickly just want to tell the story that I saw Mm -hmm. somewhere on the internet of this, this girl and her boyfriend were having a conversation. And he said, if I ever die, I'm going to find a way to give you a message. And here's what the message will be. So that way, whenever it happens, you'll know that it's me. And it was something like, I love fried pickles or, or something just kind of like off the wall. And this woman is out in public or out at a a bar or a club or she's just out dancing with her friends and this stranger comes up to her and says I do not know why but I have the urge that I have to tell you that I love fried pickles and she's like oh that's fine it's just my boyfriend who passed away last year in a car accident just coming to tell me he's like I don't know uh, I don't know you from a hole in the wall but I have to tell you that I love fried pickles and she's like oh yeah that you're just my boyfriend coming to tell me like and it's just it means I love that things actually happen and Mm-hmm. I think I, uh, my, my partner and I, we have the conversation where we're trying to figure out what phrase we're going to use uh, so we can use it, uh, you know, unanimously to each other. So we're trying to figure out something that's unique enough that we wouldn't miss the message. So I'll let you know when we figure out what that's going to be. I love that. And I love that you're having these conversations. Yeah. And my family, we are very open about our wishes about if we were incapacitated, what we would want. We're, my mom and I are both medical professionals, so we have a very good knowledge of you know, what we believe is comfort and and sometimes, you know, what what our wishes would be. And then also post-mortem, we all kind of want to be cremated and not, we don't want to have that burden of like being to us in the ground seems more like we would rather be free. So free to move, free to, to blow in the wind, so mm. to speak. But so 
we, we have these, we've been having these conversations since I was a child. So it makes it less scary that we now know what each other would want. And great, great for other people to hear that and go, oh, right. Talking to children about death and normalizing it, bring them to funerals, practicing little losses by pointing out, you know, bugs on uh, that have died on your windshield or the leaves changing. There's all kinds of ways that we can recognize death as part of the cycle of life that is normal and sometimes can be deeply sad. And other times, if it might not be someone you know, or it might be, um, you know, a bug on the windshield and you don't necessarily have a, a visceral experience to that, uh, to pr- still practice these, these um, quote unquote, little losses. You do so many things with so many people. You do the spirit work, the caregiver work, the the terminally ill. And then you've also, we've kind of brushed on this earlier, but you've created a death guide, so to speak. I definitely mm-hmm. want to dive into that. What the book's contents are, how we can, you know, when we should buy this book. Should I buy it now? Should I buy it when I get ill? Or, you know, tell me a little bit about the book, what, what, it, what it's all about. Sure. So it's called The Modern Death Care End-of-Life Planning Guide. And it's an essential resource to plan for end of life. So whether you have just gotten a diagnosis and want to get your planning done ASAP, I speak to exactly where to start in the book, which is the substitute decision maker section. Or if you are a practitioner, healthcare provider, or death doula, it's a great resource to use to inform yourself about what your client's options are. And if you're a death doula, you can walk your clients through it. So it's a great framework for you uh, as a caregiver, as a person with a life-limiting illness or someone who's generally well, it's, it's a great resource to do your own planning. And so the, um, the contents in it are the essential information section. So you're filling out things like your medical uh, information and history, the important people that you want to have reached out to. And then the other sections there are um, looking at your insurance policies, noting where there's any um, where your banking is and then teasing out your fears and concerns and also your hopes and wishes and desires and even a section for legacy work. So it's it's an all-encompassing book that covers everything that you'll need and even points you to forms that you can fill out and information like home funerals and green burials and family-led death care. What is that? And if we wanted to do a hybrid of using a funeral home but also family participation, what that can look like. Wonderful. Where can I order this book? You can go to moderndeathcare.com and there's both a digital version, which you can fill out the sections on your computer and save to your computer, or you can buy the soft cover version, which I mail out and you can use with a pen. Well, I will be ordering one for everyone in my family for Christmas. They might think it's a morbid <laughs> Christmas gift, but I think it can't be stressed enough how important it is to not only think about our death, but you have to face it. You have to realize that it's going to happen. Whether you deny it forever or not, you have to be able to understand that we're all on this trajectory. All of our lives' paths are are headed this direction. And by denying it and ignoring it is only going to make it more painful for everyone left behind. And I think that's the important message is is even more so than advocating for planning, which I am an advocate for planning, but to to empower people to make a, a choice that really um, an empowered choice, essentially. So understanding that it's OK if you don't want to plan ahead. I, I fully accept that. And to give you the picture of what that looks like, you're likely going to spend uh, more money. You will likely have added grief 
in in a time when you're already experiencing quite a bit of grief and um, you may be conflicted with decision making at the time and not knowing what to do, uh, which can give you feelings of, of um, regret moving forward. However, some people feel it's too painful to plan now. And so they wait till those times and they're willing to accept that that's what the picture looks like. And other people see that picture and they say, I don't want to have potential conflict in the family or spend thousands more than I need to. I want to go through this with as much ease as possible. And then they choose to plan. Perfect. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So everything that you've, all of these skills you've developed, this wonderful path that you've taken, has it reinforced or changed or challenged what you think when you think about death? I definitely take more risks in life. (laughs) Absolutely. I am more aware of my nearest and dearest mortality. So I tend to ask the questions, say the things, uh, plan ahead with them. And, and when I'm leaving a visit with, especially with my parents or my sister, that I feel as complete as possible with them in case there isn't another opportunity. And I also go through life with the, with the experience or the belief that I'm giving myself the grace that if, if my family or loved what my dearest to me die before, before I necessarily feel ready or anticipating that, which really could be any time, then I give myself the grace that I've done the best that I can and I've said the things and done the things and have really held mortality of myself and others in my awareness so that when that time comes, I can give myself more grace in that experience. We could all use to get, we could all give ourselves more grace in life. Mm-hmm. How has everything you've been through affected the way you live? I do a lot more of the things that I love. And when I feel called to something, I go towards it. And I really trust that my, I have an inner knowing that is from beyond the beyond. And that when my heart feels called towards a person, an activity, a career, um, just having an intuitive hit about something, that that's the direction to go in. And time and time again, I have not been, I have not been steered off course. That feels, that's helped me to be most in alignment with myself and have the most ease and lightness than I've ever felt in my life, having followed more and more of those intuitive um, hits that I get and to go towards the things that I feel I feel called to. And a great analogy that I'd heard is, is not wanting to get to your deathbed and looking around the floor and seeing all these presents wrapped and wondering what could have been inside. It's like when there's a gift at, at when I imagine there's a gift at the, the edge of my bed, I imagine opening it to see, you know, what what is another skill that I want to grow into or what do I want to learn or where do I want to travel or what do I want to do with my life so that I'm continuing to open those gifts, the things that, that I really feel called to. Do you think that working closely with death gives you more of that intuitive nature? Because every person that I, I feel like I've talked with and, and even just myself getting more into this topic, I feel just like I can trust my gut. I can hear it when my intuition is telling me something. And it's like, do you think that, that, that working around death and, and talking about it has given you more intuition? I think there's been more available to me. And I've also equally been listening more. 
and creating more space. So one of the things I do in my own life is create more capacity to be able to receive messages, to be able to listen to the signs my body is giving me or cues that I'm getting that something is a yes or a no and doing things like even muscle testing. If I'm going to try a food and see if I'm picking something off the menu, I will just like ask myself internally, is this something that my body my body wants. And then if I feel myself moving forward a little bit, that's a yes. And if I feel myself moving backwards a little bit, that's a no. And with practice, you can really tap in and, and access more intuition and more bodily awareness. And it's available to everyone, though doing death work has definitely um, made it more, more accessible and available to me. It's all under the surface for everybody. We just have to learn how to hear it, I guess. Mm -hmm. and I think that's what this this podcast has done for me is it's given me before when I thought about death and everything it was just all anxiety all intense fear and mm -hmm. although I still have those fleeting moments where it's like you know I get a little weirded out in my skin I just I, I think of these conversations and I look back and I say like so many people are learning to kind of harness this beauty and, and this energy and and all this work that I'm doing is is for not it's not for nothing because at the end of the day like I have all these resources and just hearing people's stories gives me that connection to other people and I just I, you know thank you for for sharing you know your your journey with me. Um, mm -hmm. the, the last question, it does not have to be death related, but if you could leave the listener with one piece of advice, a tidbit, or just something to think about, what would you mm -hmm. share? I would share that we're all spiritual beings having a human experience. And part of what keeps us on this earth longer is looking after this, this house that our spirit is in, which is our bodies. So whatever that looks like for you, perhaps it's um, movement, more movement, or perhaps it is talking with others or, um, or just tending, tending more lovingly to this home that your spirit is living in can help us to live longer, healthier, happier lives and um, to really take care of our homes. And um, I would also say to practice now growing your capacity for more, which looks like doing more of what you love doing more of what brings you lightness, laughing more, having more joy, more rest, growing into these different areas that allows us to experience more of life so that when we have these bigger life moments that might feel more challenging, we have more capacity available to us to be with them without it completely sideswiping us. Oh my gosh, Carrie, this conversation <laughs> could go on forever. Could. Been, this was amazing. I love hearing about your story. And I've had people reach out to me that say, you know, as a nurse, maybe this is something I could move into. And so I'm definitely open to that. Now that I'm facing death and embracing it in a way that I never thought I could, I feel more called than anything to work with other people about, you know, this whole podcast, in a sense, is helping kind of guide people to that process. And, um, you know, thank you so much for just coming on the show, telling me more about what you, what you do, how you do it, and what it means for those people that you work with. Because I think Every person you've ever worked with has come away from your experience with them with just more love, more compassion, and more room for growth. And also working with clients, I see this beautiful ripple effect that they are then supporting other people or sharing information that I've shared with them. And I can really see the growth of helping one person and how that continues to ripple out and help more and more people. That is beautiful. 
if people want to connect with you, because I'm going to go on Modern Death Care and buy the book today, if people want to connect with you or, or find ways to work with you, how can they connect with you? They can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Modern Death Care. They can join my mailing list where I give upcoming information about workshops and death cafes. And then I have the death doula training coming up in a couple months. And they can grab my free guide to becoming a death doula on moderndeathcare.com. Awesome. Carrie, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. This was amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Julia. I once again want to thank Carrie for coming on the show as it was so wonderful talking with her and learning all about death doulaship and how amazing a resource it is for those people who are finally facing their mortality. I ask that if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review or rating on your streaming platform. It really helps. And if you or someone you know has a unique relationship or experience relating to death and would be interested in sharing your story on the show, please email us at embracingdeathpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning into Embracing Death. The more we talk about death, the more we learn. The more we learn, the less we fear. And the less we fear, the more we can embrace not only death, but the lives we still have yet to live. And as Terry Pratchett from The Last Continent stated, it is said that your life flashes before your eyes just before you die. And it's true. It's called life. We'll see you next week.